Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. And now is the best time of the year to support the podcast. For we have reached the dog days of summer. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Didn't I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode number 420 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 3. Deorbit, Reentry, and Splashdown. On the previous episode, I mentioned that I could not find a copy of the actual recording of the Garriott's prank that they played on Mission Control. Fortunately, I had the best audience in the podcast world. Listener Tom C. provided the audio clip of the Garriott's prank. A big thanks to Tom C. Hello, Alaska? This is Skylab. Are you reading me down there? Hello, Houston. Are you reading Skylab? Uh, Skylab, this is Houston. I heard you all right, but uh, I had a little difficulty recognizing your voice. Who we got on the line here? Continuing with episode 420, the second crew of Skylab got up very early on September 25, 1973 to begin the final preparations for separation from Skylab and return to Earth. The command and service module had now remained in a dormant state for 58 days while docked to the station. Of course, the command and service module systems were monitored on the ground and the spacecraft received routine inspections by the crew. But 
there remains some unease about the performance of the faulty reaction control system quads. Now, even after leaving Skylab, the crew would still have to conquer two more challenges. The first challenge was immediate and dangerous, and that was re-entry. Back on Earth, the rescue mission crew had proved in the simulator that it would be safe for Bean, who was piloting, Garriott and Lausma, to return home in their crippled Apollo spacecraft. Now it was about time for the rubber to hit the road, meaning the procedures tested in the simulator would be tried in real life. Maneuvering to re-entry with only two thruster quads still working. That was the first challenge. Very soon after that, the second challenge would begin. This challenge was far less exciting, but perhaps more difficult than the first, as that was readjusting to life on Earth after living for two months in microgravity. Before the crew could leave, they would have to deactivate Skylab in a very similar manner as the first crew, except Bean's crew added a portable fan in the multiple docking adapter to circulate air over the six-pack gyros to keep them cool until the arrival of the third crew. Next, the crew moved into the command and service module. The hatches were sealed, the cargo of experiments and film cassettes were safely stowed away, and then the crew performed the final activation of the command and service module systems. This took more time than usual due to the checking of the reaction control system. In fact, the activation and checking of the command and service module began on mission day 55, a few days before re-entry. In addition to the reaction control system leak, the command and service module had developed a small coolant loop leak. That was back in August. But it was only leaking at 1% per day. Thus, the mission would be completed before the problem became serious. Still, levels were constantly monitored. On the ground in Houston, backup crew member Vance Brand was among those waiting in the control room for re-entry. Of course, Brand... Don Lind, and others had developed and tested the procedures the crew would be using to fly the command module home. The atmosphere in mission control was a mixture of confidence and concern as the astronauts began their return to Earth. Brand recalled, quote, We were confident, but you know, any little thing could mess it up, so nobody was overconfident, end quote. The crew now undocked from the multi-port docking adapter and performed the separation maneuver. However, no fly-around was performed because of the problems with the reaction control system earlier in the mission. September 25th, mission day 60. 
And for this mission, time had about expired. Okay, Skylab, and uh, we just went around the Mocha here, and you guys are go for undocking. That's undocking, that's correct. We undocked on time, we're moving away. We indicated about three-tenths of a foot per second separation velocity. We're getting ready to run the uh, RCS check. Very good, Al, and uh, we'll be watching them. Seems like we're leaving home, Bob. Say again, Jack. Beautiful sight at night. We left our spotlight on. It's uh, just like a Christmas tree. Our spotlight is illuminated to white. We see them stars in the background. It's quite a beautiful thing. About 90 minutes after leaving Skylab, NASA gave the order to deorbit. Then the service propulsion system fired to initiate deorbit. Skylab, the bird looks super dust. Your goal for deorbit and entry. Good news. We're ready to go ourselves. We'll see you uh, on the ground, I guess. This is our last comp. Of course, Al Bean's pilot checklist had been revised due to the two quad pack thruster failures, and Bean made extensive handwritten notes above, below, and in the margins on almost every line all the way through the checklist. However, when Garriott began to look at the marked up checklist, he found it very difficult to make out Bean's, shall we say, distinctive handwriting during this dynamic reentry phase. Additionally, Garriott had not participated with Bean on any of the rehearsals of these procedures. Owen was almost lost in trying to read the sequence of these critical steps. Garriott admitted that he was very embarrassed by not being able to help Bean more by reading the extensive modified deorbit procedures to him, which would have allowed Al to concentrate on flying. Bean recalled, quote, The thing I remember about reentry was not positioning some reaction control system switches correctly. We got behind and Owen could not read my notes in the checklist because of the limited space and my unique penmanship. I said, give me the book and I'll reconfigure the switches. So he gave me the book. Then I reconfigured a few. I had a lot of things going on, and I didn't reconfigure them all. About ten minutes later, we began to drift out of attitude and we got a master alarm, and I then reconfigured the rest. I switched to direct and returned to the proper attitude, end quote. The weather in this area was overcast, and the prediction for today was more of the same. That prediction was wrong. Astronauts Bean, Lausma, and Garriott will descend through scattered clouds, landing in bright sunlight. On the water, they could be a bit uncomfortable because of swells of 8 to 10 feet, but otherwise all appears to be going well. No ceremonies are planned on board the ship. Instead, the astronauts will move directly into the Skylab mobile laboratories on the hangar deck below for extensive testing, testing to determine how well they withstood their 59 days of weightlessness. 
This is David Snell on the USS New Orleans. Anytime now, Wally, we should get confirmation that the command module has begun to pierce the Earth's atmosphere some 400,000 feet up, which I guess translates into 75 or 76 miles. This is where the command module, uh, that sophisticated space taxi, really begins to show its stuff. Uh, it really uh, is a test of the command module's durability. Up until uh, this time, really, the command module was along for the ride. It's just a house for three astronauts. Now it has to be a spacecraft. The speed of the spacecraft plowing through the atmosphere creates an electrical storm of sorts. White hot. You have a blanket of electrons. Drifts off into space, uh, dissipating and absorbing heat. As it does, it's less than three inches thick and really is a remarkable uh, piece of engineering and scientific work. The wind out there now at uh, the splashdown point said to be about 15 miles per hour. As you see, there are some puffs of clouds. Seas between six and eight feet. Does that sound good to an old sailor such as yourself, Wally? Well, that's that uh, seasickness. That, that uh, could be a rough day. Uh, the wind you're seeing now aboard ship, of course, is the ship is steaming into the wind. The uh, the crew itself uh, on the uh, ocean, as I've always said, it is in what I would call a good spacecraft, but a lousy boat. <laughs> I'm sure it comes true every time to each one of us. Interestingly enough, for the first time, uh, NASA has ordered astronauts to take motion sickness preventatives, and they took a pill uh, several hours ago. And of course, this was the crew that suffered a severe case of motion sickness early in the flight, which kept them pretty much on their uh, backs. Jack Lausma recalled the transition from zero to 4G during re-entry, saying, quote, Facing aft during re-entry, Al and I could watch our fireball. It was about four feet in diameter and about 40 feet behind the command module. It was like flying in a cone of flame, which extended from the command module to the fireball formed by ionized gases and particles from the ablative heat shield. The fireball would dance rapidly around its central location, but would break up when the roll thrusters fired, after which it would quickly reform. There was a frequent, loud banging noise right next to our heads when the roll thrusters fired, followed by frequent right and left rolling maneuvers to keep the command module on trajectory. End quote. Now the crew began to feel the atmospheric drag increasing, and eventually the smaller drogue parachute opened, and then the big beautiful three main chutes opened to slow the command module much more for splashdown. Entry was very dynamic in terms of sound, sight, and physical sensations. Jack Lausema remembered re-entry thusly, quote, At 25,000 feet, there was a loud clanging noise as the nose cone ring was explosively jettisoned to expose the parachutes. It tumbled away, and we were jerked into our seats as the two small white drogue chutes were deployed on long lanyards above the command module to slow it down and stabilize it for main chute deployment. At 10,000 feet, the drogue chutes were cut loose. 
there was a rapid sinking feeling until the main parachutes unfurled into a partially open, reefed configuration so as not to tear the panels in the parachutes. In a few seconds, the reefing cords were automatically severed to allow the main chutes to open fully for the remainder of the descent into the Pacific Ocean. End quote. We have radar contact now. Word from the ship that there is radar contact. That's a very consoling thing, because that's our real surface contact from the ship itself. And of course, that always excites each one of us, realizing we're essentially in touch with the local scene. The blackout should be ending in just about uh, five or six seconds, and perhaps we'll be hearing from Captain Bean, Major Lausma, and Owen Garriott. With the command module. Word from the ship that they have had radar contact, as we reported just a moment ago. It's interesting to note that uh, your remark about the crew being ordered to take motion sickness pills is in contrast to the earlier days when we were essentially fighting to prove that we had physical stamina. We were kind of proud of the fact that we could come off a flight and walk down that red carpet on the carrier, but it's, it's a difficult task in any case. But here you've seen a, a true physiological test of almost two months. So it's right that the crew should uh, lie back in their couches and rest and see how they look after they come back aboard. And the first Skylab crew, uh, all three of them were wobbly and woozy. They, uh, they insisted on walking out of their command module. And uh, you could tell that they were feeling the effects of 28 days in space. And here you have these men returning from a mission twice as long. Probably coming first of one of the two HC-130 aircraft. Helicopters are already airborne. Should be four of them now. Ready to move in to the splashdown point about 220 miles southwest of San Diego. Command module moving northwest to southeast. AOS is the last. The voice of Skylab now. Skylab, you think that you're They are out of the blackout. We should be hearing from them any moment. At least our concerns about that service module are over. The command module seems to be working. The man attempting to communicate with the capsule is Robert Crippen. And the other voice you will hear, the voice of Skylab, giving us some background information and information as the command module heads into the Pacific will be John McLeish. Still about two minutes before the first parachutes come out to begin to slow that command module down. He's traveling at more than 11,700 miles per hour. Still no voice contact. That helicopter is situated where it is, Wally. We'll probably see the command module above the clouds, and then the chopper will drop down below, and we'll see it from below.
man, Roger. That spaceship weighs about 12,000 pounds. Do you have a sensation of falling at this stage of the game, Willie? Yes, you do. You're, uh, you're really in the 1G field, as we call it now, which is what we feel sitting here at a television console in that sense. But you're, uh, you're anxiously waiting for those parachutes because they are a rather beautiful sight after those two months of looking at Earth. No clear communication with the command module yet, Wally. Apparently they had some signal they didn't, wasn't readable. Despite all of our success, this is a, a nervous moment, isn't it? Waiting Again, for yeah. a definitive word. <laughs> I get those moist hands on recovery as well as I do on liftoff. I never believed it till I saw it. Your hands yeah, are see? sweating. <laughs> that means I'm aware of the problem. <laughs> this is the time, of course, in a simulation where the drogue chutes come out to stabilize it through the Mach 1 area as they transition right. from supersonic to less than supersonic. That will slow the spacecraft down from about 316 miles an hour to about 178 miles an hour. Those drogues out for 40 seconds or so. There are three sets of chutes, the drogues, the pilots, and the mains. Still no word. They've had some kind of contact, but uh, I believe I heard Capsule communicator saying we can't read you clearly. Should be coming up shortly on main chute. Main chute should be out any moment now. We've been spoiled by seeing this in uh, real time. Uh, it's interesting to see how she looked when we get closer. The main chutes will slow the spacecraft down from about 178 miles an hour down to that somewhat pleasurable 19. From the ship that uh, they have a visual on the bridge of the ship that the descending spacecraft is visible from the bridge of the ship. Good news. That's good news. Yeah. They haven't heard much from it, Recovery but they can the see it. Helicopter makes similar report. Communication is not very good out there. Now I'd be much more comfortable if I could hear them say a few words, because this is a, a new milestone in space flight two months there. There it is. View. There it is. All three chutes appear to have opened. I think I heard the crew's voices at last transmission. Skylab crew heading home after 59 and a half days in space, the longest space flight, the longest trip in the history of mankind. You can really grind out the miles in Earth orbit because you don't slow down as you do on route to the moon and back. Your uh, times when you slow down is like 6,000 miles an hour. Here, if you, if you got down to 6,000 miles an hour, you wouldn't be in orbit very long. Not the best pictures we've ever seen from out there, Wally. Well, the way the uh, early shots look, the ship, of course, has good pictures, but they're not close enough here. But that's We're a good shot. There it is, yes. Apparently, the helicopter isn't sending it. That's probably from the ship itself. Well, the, the uh, 
helicopter with the camera on board was ordered to keep at least two miles away from the spacecraft because during the last flight, there was some debris from re-entry on the helicopter. And as you know, helicopters, uh, someone once said, they're not really made to fly. And they don't have the redundant parts that fixed-wing aircraft have. I always felt it was sort of an accident looking for a place, although I had some helicopter training, of course, preparing for the lunar mission. One-third of an acre of material in those three chutes, each one 83 and a half feet in diameter. You could throw one heck of a lawn party under one of those ones. <laughs> could you, though. If you like orange and white. Yeah. Why do they call it international orange? Uh, this was a color agreed on by uh, the various nations that uh, got into the accord so that we could see this color. And a lot of the aircraft were marked with this uh, for recognition. And it does show, of course, at a great distance. And that orange is a, is a rescue color, a survival color. So if you see it, you should report it. About one minute, 30 seconds, one and a half minutes before the scheduled splashdown. Of course, the wind conditions could alter that a few seconds either way. There she is. Still communications very poor. Our old aviator statement is they're cleared straight in. <laughs> they have controlled the traffic pattern. The commander of that ship, Alan Bean, now the most experienced spaceman, putting his 59 days aboard the Skylab together with eight or nine days aboard the Apollo 12. And that record might just well stand for some time, Wally, because the next crew of Skylab astronauts, uh, they are all space rookies. They are, that's true. They've been waiting a long time for that next ride, though. But, yes. uh, you're right, they have not tasted the, the, the thrill and exhilaration of one of these missions. Well, it's also good to see those three shoots out. You recall back in Apollo 15, we had one that wasn't working too well. And in this sense, uh, they'll have a, a relatively soft landing. By no means would I recommend it as a normal practice, but it, it does do a, a credible job when you think that you're lying on your back and you can take this landing impact. Ideally, the water should be somewhat broken up by the wind because it, it makes a better penetration. The water does act as a shock absorbent, and uh, you can notice uh, the command module comes in on its toe. It's just uh, leaning into the water. Apollo command modules were designed to remain stable in the water in two different positions. The more preferable of the two was called Stable 1 and this involved the narrower nose end of the command module pointed toward the sky with the crew lying on their backs inside. The second stable floating position was stable two, the opposite of stable one. In stable two, the command module settled upside down with the heat shield on the wide end of the cone facing upwards leaving the upside-down crewmen literally hanging in their seat straps. Unfortunately, when the crew's command module landed in the water, it settled into stable two position. Then a crew member flipped a switch that would cause several small balloons near the apex of the spacecraft to inflate. As the balloons inflated, they slowly tipped the command module back to an upright position from which it would eventually be lifted out of the water to the deck of the USS New Orleans, the recovery ship. Due to the length of their mission, 
The crew was to remain in the capsule while it was hoisted so that the flight surgeon could make medical measurements before they got out of the spacecraft. Lausma recalled, quote, The frogmen were in the water immediately after splashdown. One of them looked in my window to determine our status while we were still in the stable two orientation and while we were pumping air into the three spherical air bladders on the nose of the command module to change its buoyancy so it could rotate the nose up. Hanging from the ceiling in 1G was uncomfortable after two months of weightlessness. The command module is not a good boat either, especially upside down. End quote. We're going to see it splash down any second now. There it is. It's about six miles from the ship. I always like to say the ship is six miles from them. Okay. <laughs> any way you want it. You outrank me here. Well, she's in the water. You should learn now whether it is what NASA will call stable one or stable two, either right side up or out upside down. If it's upside down, they can write it very easily by inflating some balloons. Settle down in the water downwind from the spacecraft. Uh, the helicopter expected, helicopter is expected to move in shortly. Well, that uh, stable two, if I remember right, is the one where you're lying on your face occurs. It's not a very comfortable one because you're essentially hanging on straps face sure. down. Sure it isn't. And uh, I would hope that they do go in stable one. It's by no means that critical, but here they're Essentially, the blood rushes to your head, and it's just a, an awkward position, one that you're not accustomed to. As it was splashing, Wally said there are uh, shock reports, You can still see the drogue parachutes descending down through about 2,000 feet. Well, that remark was about the uh, other chutes, of course, it yes. pulled away when the main chutes came out, and they come down on their own. There were four shock absorbers on one edge of the command module. They're made out of crushable aluminum, so when that spaceship hits the water, those tend to absorb much of the shock, and I, I believe there are shock absorbers uh, on the couches themselves, each leg of yes. the couch. They're uh, more readily used or required, is a better way of saying it, when you have an event uh, on a land landing where you need a, a very good shock attenuation. I remember the first time we did this, Wally, I said that would lead one to expect a rather soft landing, such as the one we saw here, and you winced. <laughs> Pointed down into the ocean itself. There are three plastic bags that inflate rather slowly, and as they do... The spacecraft seems to be upriding satisfactorily. Yeah, it'll come up right over. Those three astronauts are going to be mighty glad they took those seasickness pills, Wally. <laughs> I think you're quite you. right. That's, it's, you can see it heaving. That's an old Navy expression in the sea there. That's heaving a, is a rather uh, <laughs> apropos term for that. <laughs> it is, isn't it? As a matter of fact. Things Say, are, uh, there's cause for double celebration out in the Pacific. I forgot to mention that. On this day, September 25th, back in 1513, Balboa, the Spanish explorer, was credited with having discovered the Pacific. He was later beheaded after an argument with his father-in-law, so there must be a lesson there somewhere, Walter, but I don't think we'll go into that. <laughs> the helicopters are in place, swimmers in the water. The 
the uh, ship that the command module is now uprighted. Good. Well, that makes life more pleasant. Also a report uh, from the ship that one of the chutes appears to be sinking. Well, they would like to rescue those chutes. For those of you who did not see the return of the first Skylab crew, we, we should say that unlike the moon man, the Apollo crewmen, these uh, crewmen will stay in the command module until the spaceship is lifted on board the carrier, and then they'll leave. There are obvious reasons why the men are... Well, this readaption to uh, Earth's gravity is, of course, the, the greatest problem. The, your blood has weight, and it has, of course, volume, and you have to pump it around. Your heart, uh, once you've been acclimated to space as long as these men have, uh, doesn't really have the strength to pump this blood up uphill, so they'll try to keep them seated or prone if it's necessary. There's no sense stressing them at this point. That is kind of a good little rough sea out there. It sure is. Did you mention they were all wearing their G-suits, Wally? I got this back. I, uh, I think they should be. Uh, they, they are, and uh, they've been told that they should inflate their G-suits, which would uh, have the effect of forcing the blood back up from the legs so that it will not pool in their legs, forcing it back up towards the heart. Only one of the astronauts in the last crew did that, Joe Kerwin because he was feeling so poorly. And he's the one that looked the worst. And, uh, he sure did. <laughs> that is surprising. He said he was fine, but rather than staying in his couch until the command module was lifted aboard the carrier, he went down to the lower equipment bay and took out some strawberry drink. And after two sips, oh. everyone on board that command module knew <laughs> that he was in trouble. Well, there's a tendency to want to get out of that couch because you don't like the confinement. Uh, my flight, Apollo 7, the three of us got out of the couches to take our suits off, and uh, Don Isley became a little ill. Uh, but he managed to contain himself, which of course is a bad pun in that sense, but did do quite well. The there, there go your couple of frogmen. Yes, they're in the water now. They've got their work cut out for them. There have been recoveries in higher seas than that, but that is rough, at least by my calculation. Uh, uh, it gets my attention. <laughs> Screw the, the crew of the Skylab now going through the post-flight checklist. And uh, they're on the water and evidently okay. We haven't heard too much at all from them. For the most part, re-entry and splashdown was not too much more stressful than usual. After procedural adjustments made to compensate for the locked-out thrusters, the crew managed to return to Earth without serious problems other than some difficulty in reading the deorbit checklist and splashing down in the stable two position. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 420 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab 3, Deorbit, Reentry, and Splashdown. Our next episode should be released on or about 
August 24th. If you would like to be notified by email when new new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email in the text box on the right-hand side of the page. You'll have to scroll down a little bit to find it. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 239 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. You have to put the archive in there or else it'll come up with the regular and sometimes they just don't find it if you don't put archive in it. I don't know why search engines work that way. It just does. It should be available on most podcatchers though. And it's on Spotify, by the way. Both of them are on Spotify. If you like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at SpaceRocketHist. And you can follow on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon at patreon.com slash SpaceRocketHistory. Had a few afterthoughts, of course, as always. I apologize for my mispronunciations. I want to give a big shout out to Tom C. for providing that audio clip of the Garriott prank. I wish I could have found it and played it last week, but better late than never. A couple things struck me about this episode. The first was the fact that Garriott never practiced the reentry procedures with Bean. If they had, they would have figured out that Owen couldn't read Al's handwriting when they did find out it was a little too late now it seems to me they finished up the mission early and they had time to practice together of course i know i wasn't there but from the information that i have gathered it seems to have been a fairly big mistake made by bean and garriott But I guess as commander, the ultimate blame is on Bean. It seems they could have at least practiced it together one time before they tried it because reentry is pretty serious procedure. Also, many of the flight controls could be reached from the center seat. So when Bean had to stop flying and and flip switches, seems to me that he could got a little bit of help flying the uh, spacecraft from whoever was in the center seat. But if that was possible, it seems like they would have thought of doing that. Another thing I question is, couldn't there be a better way of writing a checklist where it's easier to edit? It seems they are constantly making changes to the procedures and making notes and having to add between typed lines and anywhere else they can fit it in on the page. There is just not enough room in the book. Those are the only things I can complain about on this episode. All things considered, that was a fantastic crew and a fantastic mission. Now, I left them floating out in the Pacific. Next time, we'll hoist them aboard the New Orleans and see how they are and see how they fare with the second challenge, which is readapting to 1G. This is a big deal because 
they'd been up there for almost two months, and nobody else had done that. This was the first time. So we're learning a lot of things, and this was a key goal of Skylab, was learning how the body can adapt to space travel long term. Then we will proceed along to the third and possibly the final flight to Skylab. I want to give a shout out to Christopher H. Sent me in an email and uh, I'll take an excerpt here from it. Uh, I'm not sure when you mentioned it. I've been busy catching it up. In one of the episodes, you mentioned some Boy Scouts and them hiking up to Mount Phillips. I am still involved in the Boy Scouts, an Eagle Scout myself and my son. As a youth, I too hiked up the mountain. My current troop just got back from Philmont. It is a great experience. And then he sent in a couple pictures, and he's got his picture. Uh, and he's got uh, a picture of them descending Mount Phillips. So, uh, Christopher, thank you for sending that in. That, that is impressive. Uh, I also want to thank all of you who have written in and complimented me on the Skylab series. It is really nice to know so many of you appreciate this in-depth coverage. It encourages me. So, really, sincerely, thank you for writing in and telling me that. I, I appreciate it very much. Just, I have just a little bit of personal news. Uh, feel free to skip this part if you want to. The soybeans are growing great out there. We've had some good rain. The garden is overgrown. I've got a... We've gotten one big watermelon out. We've got two more left in there and may have some cantaloupes. They're pretty much covered up with grass now because so much grass grows. You know, I found something out. The secret to growing grass is to make a driveway and cover it in gravel because I will tell you what, my driveway has so much grass growing in it, it is ridiculous. I guess I'm going to have to take a torch out and burn that grass because the places I want grass to grow, like the backyard, it won't grow. It's like, it's like Death Valley out there. But in the growing up through the gravel, I mean, I've got three or four inches of gravel on that stuff, and it's growing up from there. <sighs> Unbelievable. Okay, that's all I have for personal news. Uh, well, folks, in, in donations, if the dog days of summer were not enough, Patreon has now cost me 14 patrons. They sent me a little letter about it, and I'll read you the excerpt. Excerpt begins. Hi there. All right, tip number one. I'm interrupting the excerpt. If you got some news and you're a professional company, you don't start off with a flippant type of greeting like, Hi there! Because this is affects the money I received for doing the podcast. I've just lost 14 patrons. So, hi there is not a really proper uh, way to start out an uh, email. Anyway, continuing with the excerpt. An issue with a payment partner 
is causing a slightly higher than normal number of your patron Patreon payments to be declined by their banks. We've traced the increased declines back to payment systems upgrades required by one of our processing partners. Patrons might see some payments decline while changes take effect. And that's all the excerpt I'm going to read. If you are one of the 14 patrons affected, you will receive an email from me with some suggestions how we might overcome this difficulty because Patreon includes some suggestions for me to send out to you. I am very sorry about this inconvenience. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Patreon Well, they're blaming it on their payment processing partner, whoever that is. So if you could follow through on this, I certainly would appreciate it. It's tough to lose 14 patrons. Okay, many of you have heard that it is dog days, and you did send in some extra support this week and I appreciate it. we had eight new donations and pledges I'd like to thank Martin G from London who sent in an additional donation and is at the Artemis level with galaxy emoji Matthew F from Tennessee sent in another donation and moved to the Artemis level Christopher H donated at the Orion level and earned a galaxy emoji Rich K donated at the Gemini level and earned a satellite emoji. Stephen C. from Georgia donated at the Apollo level and earned an alien emoji. Andrew F. from New Zealand donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Rich H. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level and Devin M. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level and earned a moon emoji. Our total Patreon donors for 2023 has declined to 226. It was 240. So, our total donors, which include Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks for 2023, have reached 320, with an overall goal of reaching 454 this year. So if you are enjoying this podcast that's been running for over 10 and a half years without commercial interruptions and you can't afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or you can donate by check, donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thank you so much for uh, remembering us in our time of need in the dog days of summer. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. You know, I continue to take for granted the trips to and from space. They are anything but routine. I can only imagine the emotional roller coaster the astronauts and their families felt during these missions. And this crew, accomplishing so much despite starting with a severe case of motion sickness. Impressive. 
Congrats. Well done, Skylab 3. Okay, now it's time for the winner for this episode. Remember, you'll get the choice of the SRH Archive Magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Andrew Balte. Andrew Balte, if you'll email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all who have contributed thus far in 2023. My sources for this episode were NASA, Homestead in Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, NBC News, CBS News, Skylab America Space Station by David Shaler, Outpost on the Frontier by Jay Chaladick, Apollo, an eyewitness account by Alan Bean, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 421 posted on or before August 24th. So long for now.